VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing this Come On with an edition of Open Line on this beautiful Friday. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So beautiful time of year for us baseball fans. You know, and it is a beautiful sport to watch. I always hear being referred to as too slow. But every pitch is a game in and of itself, just for me anyway. And so the Yankees lose last night to go down 0-2 in that series. But you think back to some of the most memorable moments that have been captured on film that if you're just turn to your mind's eye, you can picture them quite clearly. One such for me, for many ball fans, today in 1975, Boston Red Sox catcher Carlton Fisk hit a 12th inning home run to beat the Reds 7-6 in Game 6 of the World Series. Can you remember that one, Dave? Do you know that one? So Fisk scoops up a low pitch. And then he uses all the body English available to, you know, to make it stay fair, stay fair, stay fair. And, of course, it did. They went on to lose Game 7, of course, to the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine. But that was a pretty memorable one. And it's today in 1980 that the Philadelphia Phillies, and they're still alive in the National League, after 98 years in existence, they won their first World Series when they beat the Kansas City Royals. Mike Schmidt, third baseman, of course, was the MVP there. All right. Now that the Formula One is bringing their circus or spectacle to North America this weekend, racing at the Circuit of the Americas, this is a good one. Today in 1984, the great Nicky Lauda became a three-time Formula One champion by finishing second in Portugal. He won the title over Alain Prost by 0.5 points. A half a point makes Nicky Lauda a three-time champion. Okay, all right. So... This has caused a stir in some corners. I don't know if it's important to you, but if it is on either angle, you know what to do, is to give us a shout. They've been singing the Ode to Newfoundland at Munn's Convocation Ceremony since the 1950s, but they will now sing no more. It's an interesting move. I don't know where it came from, the move to stop singing the Ode to Newfoundland, but of course, as everybody knows, originally composed by Governor Sir Cavendish Boyle back in 1902. It's a four-verse poem. It was originally set to music by a German fellow named E.R. Kipner. Then Boyle thought that he'd like to have what he called a more dignified score, and that was by British composer Sir Hubert Parry, who was a friend of Boyle's. On the 20th of May of 1904, the government of the day made the Old Newfoundland the official national anthem of the Dominion. We dropped it in 1949 when we joined Canada, but in 1980, the Old was once again made our official national anthem, our provincial anthem. So I personally have a soft spot for the Ode. I like the Ode to Newfoundland. I'm not too shook up or worn out or frustrated about the fact that it's no longer going to be sung at Mun. But they say it's just not inclusive enough because no references to Labrador. So there's a seven-person committee, apparently, that is chaired by President Vianne Simmons, Timmons, pardon me, ma'am, and seven vice presidents, and they made this decision, apparently, in a unanimous vote. So because if you're from Labrador, and good morning to the folks in Labrador, if you were sitting in the seats at the Arts and Culture Center and the ode was sung, you didn't have that same sense of pride and inclusion. So says Vice President Lisa Brown. There's also references to God guard thee, our fathers, all those types of things that we saw that played a role in the rewriting of the national anthem. So, you know, the issue with not inclusive, okay. 
And, you know, there will be all kinds of references thrown around, pejoratives like woke and what have you. But is there a way to adopt or to adapt to having it more inclusive? Because, of course, when it was first written, Labrador was simply part of the Dominion and then the province of Newfoundland until the name was changed, I think, in 2001 to, say, Newfoundland and Labrador. So, I've, you know, I have the unscientific method of looking at my email inbox to see what people are thinking. And it's pretty much a 50-50 split. Some people are quite frustrated. Some people shrugging their shoulders. Some people applauding the move, especially folks, of course, from Labrador. So in a four-verse poem, is it possible, because we only and generally sing the first and the fourth verse, is there a way to dump one of the verses and adopt a verse that speaks directly to Labrador and Labradorians? I don't know. Is there an opportunity to add a verse? I don't know. You know, and when we think about and look at Labrador, you know, when I see the Labrador flag, the first thing that comes to mind for me, that's a beautiful flag. And then, of course, there is such a thing as the Ode to Labrador, which is actually also quite beautiful. It was written by Dr. Harry Padden in 1927. It's sung to the melody of O Tannenbaum, right? So curiously, when it was written in 1927 and sent to the Board of Health, uh, sent to Labrador by the London Board of Health, 1927 is also the year when the boundaries of Labrador were formally adopted by the, uh, the Privy Council of Canada in 1927. Now, Quebecers don't realize it. They still draw a map that includes Labrador into Quebec, which is so funny and frustrating. It's almost hilarious if it wasn't so sad. So there's also the Ode to Labrador. Is it possible to add the Ode to Labrador? Many Labradorians will know it. You know, dear land of mountains, wood and snow, Labrador, our Labrador... So in many people's corners, this is a stir, this is a problem. For others, I'm not so sure. But it's never up to me to determine what you think. That's the beauty of the show. You get the call and tell us exactly what you think about this move made by the university, the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Yeah. Anyway, so the ode will be sung no more. You know, just on the personal note, you know, to see, like, Jack Daly and others playing rugby, and we take them on the road, say we're in Ireland, and you'd line up across the 22 and shoulder to shoulder, arms over each other's shoulder, and sing the ode loud and proud. Just some of those little things I think will stick out of people's minds as to where they think the ode plays a role in the history of the culture, whether it be at sporting events or whatever the case may be. But it's also curious, at convocations, they have the voice regal salute and then do the old land proclamation. You know, there's some juxtapositions that I think can and should be discussed. So what do you think of this particular move? Anyway, let's stick with Labrador for a second. Between the Provincial Search and Rescue Association and the RCMP, they're hoping to start three new ground search and rescue teams on, in Labrador on the south coast. So they've had consultations in Mary's Harbor, Cartwright, and Forto to see what kind of interest is out there. So this is a good thing. There are indeed Canadian rangers in the region, but... That would mean the Mounties would have to make a formal request through the Canadian Armed Forces to avail of their help, their support, when, of course, we can be much more nimble without having to go through those channels. So this is a great idea, and hopefully the interest is there. And we know the invaluable work done by the volunteers working different search and rescue organizations across the province. I mean, just truly outstanding. The province has indeed upped their budget for the Provincial Search and Rescue Association. That's a good thing. But in the larger question is the federal government's role in search and rescue capacity in Labrador. It has long been time for them to acknowledge the fact that the presence of the Coast Guard and search and rescue, even a fast rescue craft, non-existent in Labrador. How can that possibly be? We've learned lessons the hard way. Some of the stories that may jump to the front of your mind, Burton Winters, and of course the two lads from Mary's Harbor. None of this is good enough. 
they owe, the federal government owes due consideration. It's fine to come to town as Defense Minister Anita Anand talking about investment in five-wing goose bay as part of our NORAD uh, obligations, and four such northerly bases will be getting investment in, but you've got to do more with search and rescue in Labrador, and everybody knows it including the current member, including past members. Now, if you look at some sitting members of parliament who have dismissed the Labradorian concern for search and rescue, Ms. Bergen, for instance, you know, and others, I mean, where are their thoughts? How can that possibly be how they view this particular issue? But anyway, with Labrador, those opportunities to have established three new search and rescue teams on the south coast, let's see if they can get them off the ground. But feds, please pay attention. And, of course, with Labrador, people still want to talk about the Premier goes fishing. Now, when you think about some of the things that have happened in this province that have ended up being absolutely quite scandalous, the constituency allowance over Spain comes to mind. People went to jail, right? And then some of the looming questions regarding Muskrat Falls and embedded contractors and many other instances where there have been distinct problems, potential crimes committed, and this story, now what you think about it is up to you. You know, the Premier says he paid his own way. Does it bring an end to the story if he just shows the documents and say, look, here's how I booked it, here's how I paid for it, and it's on my dime and on my time, and so what's the problem? If that's a thought, and if that brings an end to the story, so be it. But it's not for me, once again, to tell you how to view these particular issues. But when this is the one that brings upon a call for an ethics commissioner, okay, look, an ethics commissioner makes all the sense in the world. The transparency we demand as voters has not been attended to in adequate fashion, in my personal opinion, and I think that's a consensus among, amongst the general public. Is this, is this particular fishing trip the reason for an ethics commissioner? No, but in the future, to have that position in play just does seem helpful. Now, maybe, just maybe, we can also add some campaign finance reform, which is a much bigger deal to me than this particular story, but an ethics commissioner, sure, why not? Right? It's to all our benefit. And it's to the benefit of politicians, too. You know, some of these things, it's hard to understand how they do the calculations in their mind. Whether it be civilian oversight of law enforcement, and whether it be an ethics commissioner looking at the operations of the 40 members of the House of Assembly and the government in full. So, yeah, sure, let's do it. Let's bring that particular person in. And speaking of oversight and monitoring and advocacy... The seniors advocate Susan Walsh is asking, and this is based on recommendations from a 2019 report, looking for an immediate review of personal care homes and long-term care facilities in this province. Absolutely right, Mrs. Walsh. We do now know, it's being reported, that there's two licensed practical nurses that are being investigated by Central Health and the RCMP for the inappropriate things we've seen and heard about coming from one of the care facilities in Central Health. It's outlandish. If the reports are accurate... It's absolutely outrageous, the things that have been done. And so an investigation, immediate review into personal care and long-term care, it can, all, it can only be a good thing. Think of some of the things we've talked about over the years. Staffing ratios, staff to patients, right? Thinking about the issues regarding the numbers of people in our care facilities that are living in restraints, taking antipsychotic drugs, comparing them to other provinces and the national average. There is something to see here, folks. There absolutely is. It's not to say that there's nefarious or scandalous or criminal, but it is not working the way it's supposed to work when what we do all the province of seniors is a dignified, healthy, safe place to live. And so this in immediate review, Ms. Walsh is 100% right. Now, it's always going to boil back to the same commentary coming from government members. 
until investigations are concluded. Okay, and when that happens, can we get on with it? Same thing when we look at come by chance or anywhere else where there's been internal investigations, occupational health and safety, RCMP, health authorities, when they've done it, and we know there is more to understand, improvements to be made based on investigations, let's get on with it, as per Mrs. Walsh's absolutely spot-on commentary on it. Okay, keep her going. So, it looks like there was a banner season in the tourism sector, which was much desired. Two years, and everyone knows the reasons as to why. So I haven't heard much from the operators, but I do know it's been really quite busy. And I think it's just about for the peaky type of season, pretty much over at this point, even though there's still some tourists around. Just look at the numbers at Marine Atlantic. Holy moly. So just under 160,000 passengers use the ferry service just between July and August. That's up 20,000 more for the year, uh, pardon me, in 2019. 20,000 more than pre-pandemic traveled across the strait on Marine Atlantic. Even if you look at just those numbers alone, it's really quite encouraging. Now, commercial traffic was pretty much stable, but those uh, passenger numbers are unbelievable. If you compare the entire 12 months of 2021, less passengers traveled, or fewer passengers traveled, pardon me, than just in between July and August of this year. So encouraging numbers coming from Marine Atlantic. But on the revenue side, of course, the inputs for cost of fuel and otherwise, they also skyrocketed. They're having apparently some issues with trying to have a full complement of staff. Many moved on during the pandemic because of the obvious reasons once again. So the revenue for the year, about $105 million. That's an increase of $13 million over the previous year. But the federal government, in an effort to balance the books, had to contribute some $131 million. And as we know, part of the issue that makes the marine Atlantic prices the way they are is the cost recovery model. 65% of costs have to be recovered on ticket sales. It hit about 60 this year. I still think there's room for the federal government to have a bit more of a realistic uh, view of Marine Atlantic, given the constitutional requirement for it to be established between not only Port of Basque and North Sydney, but of course North Sydney and Argentia. So let's see if we can get that cost recovery model down a little bit more. So more obligation for the feds, less obligation for the traveling public. And yes, the headquarters will remain in St. John's. You want to talk about it? We can do it. So price of fuels. Talk about some costs or no. Gas stable, but a fair drop in the price of diesel down 13.3 cents. So paying around 240 on the Avalon, for, for instance. Very similar prices across the province, which is unusual. Years prior, this wasn't the case. Labrador customers are paying 256 in the Straits, 261 in the South, 217 in Central, 247 West, 249 in Churchill Falls. Also, big drops in furnace oil, dropped by 11.5 cents. Stove oil down about uh, 11 and a half, or pardon me, yeah, 11 and a half cents as well. So, anyway, some good news there. And the price of alcohol, go to the NLC, prices up about 2% as of earlier this month. All right. Da, 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 da. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. Let's have a great show. Only happens when you call. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, the Doyle's Almanac of Newfoundland and Labrador for 2023 is out. And of course, it's a lovely book covering what would be history, tradition in the province, some climate news for 2023, some of the natural provinces stories, some recipes, of course. Join us on line number three is the Doyle's Almanac editor. That's Robert Doyle. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Nice well, to talk, talk again with you. Happy to have you back on the show. Robert, congratulations on another great edition. 
Sure, thanks. This is our eighth edition we just uh, published. I think it's great. So I've had a scan through it. You were kind enough to send me uh, a couple of copies a while back. Let's start with inside the whole history world with the 19 mutineers of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. Given all the discussion about, you know, the Memorial University and the old Newfoundland, and this story I think is a little bit apropos. Sure. In April of uh, 1880, um, 1800, sorry, the, um, there were 19 members of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment they were unhappy with what was happening between the the British and the Irish, and they, you know, lots of the lots of the soldiers, you know, were were Catholic Irish, and they weren't happy with the with the British Protestant rule, and uh, yeah, so they they planned to um, to rebel, to mutiny against the um, against the army, and um, it, they were discovered, and um, actually in the right in the corner in in the city here, the corner of Belvedere Street, and um, um, right there by Holy Heart, they were that's where there some of them were actually hung there. For their, for their crimes that they committed. <laughs> so it was quite a quite an interesting story. And another great story coming from the Royal Newfoundland Regiment inside the covers is the story of Lance Corporal John Shewak. He was a sniper from Labrador. Yes, and he was a Lance Corporal. And, you know, Patty, we, we consider any of the young men and women from our province that went to war, we, we consider them heroes in our book, so we certainly highlight sure. uh, some each year. And, uh, yes, he was actually considered when he went to France and he joined the long forces with the British Army, he was actually considered one of the, the, um, the, the best snipers that the British Army ever had in working you know, with them, you know? And he was killed in action, unfortunately, in France in the World War One. so he was certainly a, a hero and a member of the regiment as well. Absolutely. So you know, we'll try to sprinkle in some of the different things you talk about. Let's look at climate and the like. How did your 2022 predictions weigh out or pan out? Pretty good, as you know. Our, our science editor, Dr. Gus Fanning, he takes all the um, weather data from the from the past hundred years. He looks at all the weather stations in the province. He's got a computer program that he that he built for a model. And um, yeah, he actually when he compared the actual uh, weather that we had compared to what he forecast a year ago, he was actually about seventy percent accurate, which is pretty amazing to have uh, you know forecasting a year out to be you know that that accurate. So it's a uh, yeah, so he's very pleased with his, his forecasting that he's done for this year. And, of course, uh, Gus Fanning is the science editor for the Almanac. Look, 70% in a year-out forecast is pretty good. And no disrespect to the meteorologist, but 70% is not bad when you're looking at seven-day forecasts. So I think Gus <laughs> is doing pretty well. It is. Yeah, we, we actually interviewed, um, you know, Ashley um, um, Brower a couple of years ago, and she did say, you know, trying to forecast, you, you say within three or seven days out is uh, very difficult. So... You know, Gus, he had his, has a secret formula that he has in the model, and uh, yeah, it's been very accurate. What's Gus Fanning saying about winter and summer storms? Because we're just seeing the aftermath of Fiona, and these are very difficult stories. But you do look into the future. We've had people who are on uh, team members of hurricane groups down in the United States and Canada. What's Gus looking at for, say, storms? Yeah, well, what he's saying is that the number of storms um, may not actually be, you know, on the increase, the number of storms, but the, the intensity especially due to climate change. So we will see, you know, more damage, you know, higher higher flood amounts. And, uh, yeah, so it's definitely affected by that and also, I guess, affected by things happening like the whether it's in El Nino year, so the water temperature um, near the equator also impacts both forecasts and, and also the all the weather, the weather for our problems, whether it's iceberg predictions or the, um, you know, intensity of the storms and also, you know, number of snow days we'll have. For example, in 2023, Gus is predicting that we're going to get more snow um, this year. We had a lot of rain 
rain last year. So in the January and February of next year, he's predicting, I think, six snow days in January and, and four in February. So it looks like it's going to be a snowy, cold uh, winter to start off. Thanks, Gus. Okay. <laughs> Who's Ruby Ray? <laughs> Ruby Ray, that, that is a... I don't know if, if avid bread makers in the province will, will probably know that the Robin Hood bread and roll mix was discontinued. So two, uh, two friends, uh, Ruby and Ray, decided that they would try and replicate the, uh, the formula for the recipe for the Robin Hood roll, uh, roll uh, and bread mix. So, um, yeah, that's what they did. So uh, yours truly had to sample, sample many loaves of bread. <laughs> Lucky you. And then, of course, there's also a fine recipe to make uh, Linda's Figgy Duff at the very back page of this edition, the 2023 Doyle's Almanac of Newfoundland and Labrador. Congratulations. Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Robert? Where you can get it, I suppose. Yeah, well, first of all, a new feature this year, we have a guest author. We have Dr. Ursula Kelly, a professor emerita from Memorial. And um, her father was a logger from Gambo. She noticed that there, there weren't many well-known logging songs from the woods workers and the, from the camps and the, and, the, and the bunk houses and out in the woods. So she did some research on that and realized that there were lots of songs. They just weren't easily found or accessible. So she published about 100 of those uh, songs and brought them, brought them forward for people to, to know. So that's a, that was a great feature. We have a guest author. Um, another couple of things you mentioned, um, some of the items that we have in the features that we have in the book. We also did a, a highlight, a pro, artist profile highlight of the Ennis sisters this year. Mm-hmm. So Maureen, Karen, and Teresa celebrated you know, 25 years. And um, I think 2022 is actually their busiest year in 25 years. Everywhere you look, they're doing fundraisers, they're on tour. There's, <laughs> so quite an accomplishment after 25 years. Yeah, super talented, lovely girls. Maureen's birthday was just the other day. Yes, yes. Yeah, so we're looking at eight, eight edition is out, and we have it uh, located at you know all most pharmacies across the province. Um, have the um, in within the city here, we have the Newfoundland Weavery, uh, Urban Market, um, and then Big Goods out in Carbonier, Busy Hands Arts and Crafts. On the west coast, we have um, Crafted Treasures and Island Treasures. So lots of places. We also have our Facebook page, Doors Almanac. Um, anyone wants to drop down, I can. It's a neighborhood pharmacy downtown. We certainly have lots of copies we can uh, sign for people. And, uh, yeah, so thanks very much for taking the time to talk about Doyle's Almanac today. I enjoy our our yearly conversation. Uh, Very quickly before we go, do you take a daily dose of cod liver oil? (laughs) Not as much as I should. I mean, uh, it's funny. At at our pharmacy, we have uh, in a display case lots of the of uh, the old-time remedies and bottles, including the um, Doyle's cod liver oil. And, and many patients that come in to see the physicians that come in for the prescriptions, we have a grand chat about uh, you know how they were started off when they were in school, had to take the cod liver oil each morning, mm-hmm. and whether they liked or didn't like it. But in most cases, they're most of the people I talk to are, are healthy and alive right now, so <laughs> maybe it worked for them. We took away when we were young, first by the spoonful, and then thankfully when it came in a capsule form, yeah, made yeah. it a little bit more palpable to yeah. take on. <laughs> anyway, great stuff, and I suppose people might want to share their recipes for uh, poultices or boiled juniper stick to it, yeah, if they're so right. inclined. <laughs> Robert, thanks for your time this morning. Congratulations on this edition, and say hello to Gus for me. Okay, thanks, Eddie. Great, okay, all the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Robert Doyle from the Doyle's Almanac of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go to line number five. Michael Boyle, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Paddy. Uh, you're a very good sportsman, is that right? I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I do enjoy it. Uh, are you familiar with an own goal? Absolutely, yeah. And basically, it's a soccer term for when someone puts the ball in their own net. 
Yeah, uh, you know where I'm going with this one. I do so. <laughs> uh, and it, it shows a lack of defense. It actually shows maybe only a lack of defense. It shows maybe your your forwards are not coming back. Um, we're talking, of course, the listeners may be aware of, uh, is the uh, the absolute harebrained decision of Memorial University to uh, eliminate the ode. It's, it, 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 you know, it beggars belief, uh, Patty, absolutely. And uh, uh, and talking about diversity, and I think I, and I, I'm very strong in this in terms of, you know, if we're confident in your own culture, there's no need for someone to come and chip away at our culture. We're so confident in that. Uh, and in terms of uh, languages, at Memorial University, the Irish language is not recognized for credit course at Memorial. You know, people might want to know that. Uh, what languages, the indigenous languages, do we, do we have there? It might be interesting to talk to Michelle Joe. And ask him what's go, what uh, what programs is Memorial doing uh, in terms of language diversity, uh, you know, and such. How are they encouraging? Do you, you remember the old Mun extension? Uh, maybe you're too young, Patty. The, 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 you remember that? The extension that was on uh, the further down Elizabeth Avenue. Well, yes, and, and how they get into communities. How they get into communities. And, and the other thing that beggars belief is that, you know, we still have the royal ode. You know, the royal the royal salute will be played. But we'll we'll drop the Newfoundland ode. We'll drop the Newfoundland ode. I mean, it's it's just a it's it's a, it's just a, a, a amazing in, indeed. Uh, and people have asked me in terms of if I'm a, a, a direct descendant. I'm not really a direct descendant, but uh, when I was uh, working up in Ferryland, uh, one of the history teachers at Baltimore High School always referred to me as Sir Cavendish Boyle. Uh, and for a long time, I had that moniker, Sir Cavendish Boyle. Uh, and uh, when I do my walking tours. Uh, the name of our walking tours, where once they stood. Mm-hmm. You know, our culture, our uniqueness, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, talking with an own goal. Uh, I know there's audits from Memorial University. Uh, maybe we should look and see, you know, where they're coming. Uh, this decision sort of is a, a kind of a decision with people who've got a lot of money, a lot of time. And it's not a, an affirmative, you know, proactive decision. It's a kind of removing something. You know, you know, I, I, if they were going to look at the old and, and, make, and do some kind of uh, tampering for the university thing, maybe. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering, Patty, about it, really. I think the key point would be, just for me, and I think you touched on it, is when we're talking about inclusion, how does inclusion involve removing? If we're going to include, maybe add to what the program would be at convocation ceremonies. So if there is, and there is, an ode to Labrador, wouldn't it be better in the air of inclusion to add that to the program as opposed to take something away? It might be even a better idea because I bet you many listeners are not familiar with Harry Patton's ode to Labrador. So even if you have to hang down a song sheet because people aren't familiar with it, pick a couple of those verses, add it to the program, then that's the air of inclusion as opposed to, well, people from Labrador don't include it, so let's ax the O to Newfoundland. It just seems like a bit of a ham-fisted way to approach inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of an uneasy uh, leadership. It reflects a very uneasy, uh, unconfident uh, leadership at the top. It really is. And, you know, after the backlash, you know, we're going to see when the back down comes. And I don't even know if they're even, I mean, these people are educated. They're highly educated. Don't get me wrong. These are honorable men and women, highly educated. But, uh, and I took took degrees from Memorial. It's a great institution. And I love Memorial uh, deeply. I love it deeply. uh, But but I'm really uh, saddened this morning. Uh, There's another university, perhaps some of them should take a degree for, is the University uh, of CS, UCS. The University of Common Sense. 
And I, look, I know Dr. Timmons is from Labrador and would be proud of that, and that's absolutely perfectly fine. She's even talked about potentially the official name change to be uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's fine, but that's the step to include, not to remove. So I just, look, I, I get the whole issue, and I understand Dr. Timmons' background and the pride she has therein, but let's add. I mean, that, that's always, I think, the better way forward because then we would be exposing more and more people to the beautiful song that is the Ocho Labrador. So th- that's if, if yeah. I was sitting on that seven-person committee, that would have been my recommendation. But, of course, I'm not on the committee, so what do <laughs> yeah, I do? I do? Add the languages. Add the native languages. Sure. And, you know, and put an effort. Put a 10-, 20-year plan what we're going to do. Talk about truth and reconciliation. Do something. Do something rather than removing something. Do something. You know what I mean? Uh, it... Uh, uh, it beggars absolute belief. Lo and behold, I mean, imagine t- taking something away. And we're confident enough in our own identity, this idea of chipping away. You know, you, you build things up, you you know, type of thing like that. Uh, I, I'd like to... I'd like to conclude in saying that um, that uh, it's it's regrettable, and per- and perhaps you know we'll, next year we'll have the back down if they're courageous enough to do the back down leadership, or maybe they maybe there might be uh, trussites. Enough said. Appreciate the time, Michael. Say hello okay. to the family for me. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Appreciate that, Patty. Listening to me. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye, bye, Michael. That's Michael Boyle. His thoughts on the. I guess they'll sing no more of the Ocean Newfoundland at the convocation ceremonies. And I do think, I, look, I'm not really wound up. Some people absolutely will be. But I really do think adding in the air of inclusion would be just such a, a much more simple way to approach this. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Nurse Practitioner Association. That's Margot Antel. And good morning, Margot. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, I'm very well. Um, so I, I sort of wanted to come on today. I was supposed to uh, be in conjunction with Yvette Coffey, the president of the RNU yesterday, but we sort of ran out of time, so they split us up, which is fine. Um, initially, we sort of wanted to talk a little bit about this government plan to initiate position assistance in the province. Um, so the media, of course, came out with that, I believe, on Wednesday evening. And I want to be completely upfront in saying that, you know, Nurse Practitioner Association and nurse practitioners really have no concerns with, with physician assistance in general. Uh, in fact, we're pleased in a sense because it really shows a movement within government to embrace that team-based approach to care, which we've been talking about for seems like years. Um, and we know outcomes improve with teams. And you were speaking with Yvette yesterday about that to say, like, we really move, need to move towards an outcomes-based system. Um, but the concern maybe that we have is that physician assistants really are not, uh, are, will they be a brand new healthcare professional to this province? We don't really have infrastructure existing for them, legislation, existing scope of practice, an education model, that kind of thing. Um, and nurse practitioners, as well as other healthcare professionals, are really not being fully utilized yet. Is that something a nurse practitioner would like to do, is take on the administrative duties of a, of a, a doctor, as opposed well, to practice to their actual scope? Uh, not at all, uh, to be clear. And again, that's why I say we really don't have an issue with physician assistants, because it's two so totally separate entities, right? Physician assistants um, need to practice 
with a physician, uh, whereas nurse practitioners are completely independent providers. So it, it's definitely two different roles, right? So we, we want to be totally clear about that. But again, we're looking at nurse practitioners, pharmacists, really even registered nurses. Those roles are not being encompassed as broadly as they could be in the province right now. And the concern that NLMPA has is that you know, we're moving now towards getting another healthcare professional involved, which will have to be sort of built from the ground up, when we sort of don't have everything else maximized as it could be. And certainly nurse practitioners are not being utilized in our system right now as, as well as they could be. Where could nurse practitioners do more? Give us some examples, what you can do and what you're not allowed to do currently under the Act. So currently under the Act, there's there's very little that we are not permitted to do. Um Really, a nurse practitioner's scope of practice is determined based on their education and competency. So that can range a little bit depending on where you're working. As an example, there's a lot of talks right now, of course, of um, Category B emergency coverage, right? So there are some nurse practitioners who would have the training and education to go and work in those emergency rooms. Um, If they've done, like, the advanced cardiac life support courses, the neonatal resource courses, they would have that background. Myself, as an example, I work in primary health care. I've never had that training, so I don't have that scope but nurse practitioners in general could absolutely have that scope if they've done the training so like i said there's there's very little to say what we cannot do um there's some limitations say within the regional health authorities as employers of what we can't do for example nurse practitioners and frankly family physicians cannot order an mri without a specialist recommendation now that's not a scope of practice issue that's what the kind of regional health authorities have as, as, as rules and regulations. So I don't like to focus on what we can't do, of course. What we can do, and I think really right now what, what's very important focus, is primary health care. So nurse practitioners can certainly act as that most responsible provider, that primary health care provider. We have 135,000-plus residents in Newfoundland and Labrador without access to high-quality primary health care. Um, one thing that I think of off the top of my head, Patty, is we have nurse practitioners right now practicing privately. So working in true what I'll say fee for service where they have a private clinic where patients are paying money to see a nurse practitioner. To be clear, they're doing that because there's no model right now for nurse practitioners to work in primary health care under a publicly funded model unless they work for the regional health authority. And in the collaborative so, care clinic. Right. Well, not even necessarily in a collaborative care clinic, because nurse practitioners are working everywhere in the regional health authorities. There's some in mm-hmm. primary care, but there's some. There's tons in the acute care system, cardiology, heart failure clinic, emergency, palliative care. They're everywhere, um, but they are attached to a regional health authority. So the, uh, you know, just as, like I said off the top of my head, those privately working in people, if there was a process that they could work on a publicly funded model, they could attach patients and give regular primary health care where patients do not have to pay money to access that care, mm-hmm. probably overnight. But there's no model that exists for that. So to work in those areas, to give that service, they must charge the patient's money. And I'll be frank, the wait list to see those NPs is week long. People are paying because they need the care and want the care from nurse practitioners. But there's no other way to get it, unfortunately. You say no mechanism. Isn't it as simple? And I hate to oversimplify things in healthcare because it's so complex. But isn't it simply a matter of amending the legislation to allow for direct billing to MCP? Like, is is there anything that I'm missing there? Because that just seems about a, a willingness thing as opposed well, to a logistical item. 
I'll be honest, I'm by no means a legislative expert. Um, and, and on the surface, yes, I think it does seem as simple as that. However, I think we really need to look at the existing fee-for-service model with MCP, whereas how that works right now, it's physician-based, where people would go see their physician, their physician handles their their concern, and then on the background, the physician would then bill MCP for that visit. So MCP and the fee-for-service model is extremely antiquated. It, I think if you, again, I don't want to speak to, for physicians because that's not my role, but a lot of family physicians working in fee-for-service right now are extremely frustrated with the MCP billing system because it does not encompass complex care. If, you know, there's all, oftentimes people will say, I can only see my provider for one issue. It's mm-hmm. because lots of times MCP will only allow them to bill for one thing at a time. So if you have multiple issues, you have to go back multiple times. It's a very, it's not a system I think we need to be investing more money and time into. I'll put it that way. I think we need to find a way to encompass all healthcare providers, really, on a publicly funded model that supports um, a more comprehensive care rather than fee-for-service one-off billing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, they talk about being simply a salaried position would make it much more streamlined, effective, see more patients, deal with more issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're not speaking on on behalf of doctors. They've said that much out loud many, many times. So they're on record as... With that position, uh, very quickly before we do have to go, is you talk about the differences between the different health authorities and the rules and scope of practice issues and what have you. So do you foresee it being better for nurse practitioners when there's only one health authority as we amalgamate all four? Oh, Patty, you're putting me on the spot. Um, I have hopes that it will be better. I, I really do hope that with the amalgamation that maybe we'll see a bit of a streamlining of, of what, NPs are sort of utilized for, not necessarily scope of practice, but but utilization, certainly mm-hmm. in primary health care, because, again, that for me right now, that's our biggest area. We look at ER backups. We look at surgical backlogs. All of that is related to a, a really, really harsh loss of, of primary care, right? And if we can address that, I think many, many other issues will be assisted. So that is my big hope for the amalgamation is that we'll streamline a lot of those processes and be able to really incorporate nurse practitioner practice more. Really appreciate the time this morning, Margo. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Margo Antle. She's the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Nurse Practitioner Association. Will I take two before we go to the break, Dave? What do you want me to do here? We're going to take a break. When we come back, Penny's in the queue. She wants to talk about an experience at James Payton Memorial right after this. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, or line number two. Penny, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. It's a beautiful day out, out in this neck of the woods. Glad to hear. A little bit gray and socked in. Oh, we got the sun shining and wispy blue clouds. It's gorgeous. Lovely. And where are you calling yeah. from, Penny? I'm calling from Traytown. Okay. And I, I just wanted to uh, make a comment on the treatment that I received at James Payton Memorial Hospital in Gander. Okay, go right ahead. I was there for 35 days on the orthopedic surgery uh, floor, and the staff there are absolutely tremendous. I, I, I've been in there a few times, and I've, I found the crew that's there now. They're just so, I don't know the word to use, they're, they're excellent, really good. And how are you now, Penny? What's that? How are you doing now? Well, <laughs> I'm home now. I, I'm still I'm still bedridden, and it gets up every now and again. I broke the I broke my femur just above my knee, Oof, and I, I I couldn't have surgery, so there was 
I was put in a cast, and now I've got a, I think it's called a Klein splint. So I got recovery now to do at home and, you know, physio and that kind of thing, and hopefully, hopefully it'll come around, right? I have COPD and lung cancer, so they couldn't risk putting me to sleep. Yeah, general anesthesia, not a good yeah. idea for someone with your health concerns. Well, it's a nasty place to suffer a break. Hopefully it was set nice and sound and that the splint will do its job. And physio, of course, is going to be a lot of physiotherapy coming. Yeah, well, five, I, had, I had the cast on for five weeks, so I didn't think that was too bad. Uh, he, he just did say it would take probably up to three months for it to heal. Mm-hmm. Completely, but like I said, the nurses and the LPNs and all the cleaning staff, everybody was friendly and helpful and, you know, worked to death. Every day someone would be calling in sick and they'd have to take a nurse off a different section. And, you know, they, they were working on a shoestring. And 12-hour shifts working like that was you know, it's, it's it's hard. I don't know how they do it, to be honest. And I so don't either. they're the angels of the hospital, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we hear some other stories where it's not great, like some of the stories coming from uh, Central Health and Long Term Care. But these stories are out there too, and we can't lose sight of it. There's so many good, caring, hard-working professionals inside the system. Sometimes it's a bit of a a headache getting in the system, but for the most part, when people get in, they get the same type of care that you got and you deserve, Penny. So I'm glad you're on the mend, and I'm sure they appreciate the kind words over at the James Payton Memorial. And we do have a lot. We do have a lot of nurses that are what they call traveling nurses that come in from different parts of the country. Like we had them in there from Nova Scotia. There was a ton of them from different parts of Ontario. Wow. They'd be here for a month, and then they'd go back, and then they say, "Well, we're coming back in another month." I guess. They had to have a month in between or something. But they just about every one of them said they were coming back. They enjoyed working here that much. So, and, you know, I, I think that bodes well for for the people that have to go to the hospital. The hospital situation itself is in, in shambles, but the nurses keep it going. That they do. They're certainly the backbone of the system, says many. And my mother, as a nurse in her professional career, I think uh, she would agree. Uh, Penny, I'm really pleased to speak with you this morning. Uh, good luck in your recovery. Let me know how it goes. And just one quick story. Sure. The first day I went okay. in there, uh, like I was in severe pain, <laughs> I, uh, I had a nurse move my leg, and the pain just shot right up through my brain. <laughs> I was not in too good of a mood, and then I looked at it and I said, who do you think you are, Nurse Ratchet? <laughs> and and she's wearing that as, as, as a badge of honor. And despite that, she treated you like you're, you're her oh, own. She's, she's like she's like a younger daughter to me now. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and she didn't even know who Nurse Ratchet was. She had to go home and watch the movie. <laughs> and then she was offended. <laughs> no, she wasn't. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Penny. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. That's good stuff. Uh, let's go for Minnie, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. Hi. I called this morning, Petty, just to tell you how incensed I was uh, when I heard that they took the ode to Newfoundland uh, out of uh, the convocation at Mon. And uh, I just wanted to say, Petty, this has nothing to do with Labrador. 
uh, they're using Labrador continuously to do things. And I can assure you, Labrador got their own because my sister lived down there for almost 40 years. They have their own ode to Labrador. Can you imagine, Patty, how anybody would feel in Labrador if they just, uh, just out of the blue, came out that they're not going to use that and you can't use their ode? And I, that's how I feel. I feel uh, that that ode, when we would go down to mile one and watch curling or whatever it was such pride that we took patty to to listen to that the old to newfoundland and i see no reason in this world why they would uh, cut that out right at mon i'm wondering patty if uh, being that they're independent at this time that power's just gone to their head because the lady last night actually said that uh, she said they're just getting started, so we could wake up some morning and be something else. I mean, why are they fooling around with everything that's part of our history? I don't get it. I don't think the Aboriginal people, our Aboriginal people, are asking for these things. But uh, these people, all of a sudden, they're starting to take... And the other thing she used as well, Patty, is faith. I guess it's because you say, uh, I think the word God is used in there twice. Why? Can you figure out why they would do that? Well, I mean, it's not for me to speak for a decision that I have no idea how the conversation went. But, I mean, we make all kinds of references to God in our political system, right? All kinds of references to the Queen and all the rest of it. Is it appropriate? I don't know. I think that's a fair discussion that could be had. Because not everybody everybody prays to that God. And that's fine. I, I, I get that. I'm not one of those. I don't even actually go to church very much anymore. So I'm not a, a radical on, on religion. It's just that uh, when I see that they're changing things that are to us without a sound, even the government minister in there said, he was very disappointed, but I'm not sure they can do anything at this point because they're independent, right? Well, yeah, they have some autonomy, and so they should. Which, you know, memorial opera- memorials operations shouldn't be determined on the floor of the House of Assembly necessarily, even though the government subsidized the school to a fair tune. For me, and I'll say it one more time, is I, I suppose I understand the concept or the thought process, but it's right there in the word inclusion. So why not include Labrador formally? And if we're going to sing the Ode to Newfoundland, why not sing the Ode to Labrador too? Absolutely. Like that just makes a bit more sense to me. It you know it would be the absolute essence of inclusion and recognition. Yeah. So I'm just unsure of why they thought eliminating something was going to make anything any better. And I can't believe that if we had uh, seven people on a board, there's not one of them that didn't disagree. I don't think they have a, a they have an idea really how Newfoundland Labradorians feel about their history, you know. And Patty, does not much gets me up at nine in the morning, but that troubled me. <laughs> that troubled me tremendously last night. To be honest, I couldn't believe that uh, I was listening to that. We had three sons go to art through the university. And uh, I, I would have been so disappointed that I'd gone there. And, and I mightn't have even noticed it because, like I say, that uh, uh, when it's always been there, you take it for granted it'll always be there. 
but the you know that the ode to Labrador is another beautiful ode, and I'd hate to see them try to come back and take that away from them too. Because if they can do it once, Patty, they'll keep doing it, and that's why I called in because I wanted to get this overturned. And I thought, what better place than to get on the open line show and mention it to Patty and, and other people calling as well, right? Yeah, it's not going over well in some corners. Some people just shrug their shoulders and think, wow, there's no. many much bigger fish in the in the frying pan. But yeah, I appreciate your time, Minnie. i got to get to the news. Last word, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say there are bigger things, I'm sure. But, you know, that, was, that to me was very hurtful because I really loved... When I sung that, I knew every verse. And when I sung that, I felt, oh, so good, you know. And being down to mile one when the hockey games and the curling was played, I really look forward to hearing it, right? A lot of people do. I personally enjoy the song. I always have. Uh, I'm off to the news, Minnie. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Miles for Smiles, an annual upcoming event which I've attended in Boiring Park. In the past, Paul Toomey wants to talk about doctors and their role in helping people with eating disorders, talking about the upcoming concert for Fiona Relief, of course, October 30th at, My- at Mary Brown Center. Great lineup. John's here to talk about that. Then we're going to talk a bit of green hydrogen. All right, don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go line number... Three, say good morning to anti-violence advocate Connie Pike. Good morning, Connie. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How's it going? Fair today. You? Good, good. Um, Patty, we've been uh, trying to uh, make contact with you. Well, we were successful, obviously, uh, once a week during the month of October just to keep the issue of child abuse on the forefront. Uh, It is Child Abuse Prevention Month. And um, I believe Bev is going to reach out to you next week. So this will be my last call for a little while, unless something really jars me to call, okay. <laughs> which it often does. Um, so I, I'd just like to talk about the bigger picture this morning um, in terms of what uh, a risk factor abuse is in children's health. Uh, There was a study that was completed in 2006 that found exposure to one adverse experience doubled the odds of children having poor physical health by the age of six. Um, It triples if children have experienced four or more uh, experiences. And... uh, being exposed on a continuous basis, so in terms of five or more, it goes up by 10. So um, when children see this, they end up with uh, chronic health issues. There's uh, depression and anxiety and uh, mental health disorders, addictions, suicide attempts, there are just so many things that uh, children are impacted by, and I know this to be true. I, I really believe that abuse is a major health crisis right now in our province and in our country. Almost 32% uh, percent of the country 
has been affected. More than one-third of Canadians, I should say, 34%, sorry, have suffered some kind of child abuse in their lives. And that abuse has a strong correlation to their adult health. And I, you know, I just don't know how we're going to get around that. Like the numbers are not declining. That's the worrisome part. It's costing billions and billions of dollars every year to address child abuse in the country. But it seems like we're spinning our wheels. And when we think about the whole, you know, um, health issue for children, I, I can attest to that. I took many children from their homes, not something I really wanted to be doing, but it was part of the job. And uh, it was it was a, very difficult. It was one of the most difficult parts of the job. Uh, I recall one night going into a home uh, where we found a little boy hiding in a closet. And he was worried about his sister. And uh, I, I told you this story years and years ago, and I know people don't remember some of the stories, but this one really stood out to me in my service. And the little boy um, was so concerned about her, and we went searching for her. And um, I checked the kitchen. It was my job to do that. And the cupboards were opened. Everything was open. And I looked at the refrigerator, and I thought, well, that's almost impossible, but I opened the door, and there she was, curled up in a near-empty refrigerator, and uh, that was her safe space for that event. And I shudder to think about all the children in the province who hide each and every day or try to avoid being home in the first place, like we talked about Bev, you know, staying in school last week and not wanting to go home. And how many children are out there like that. It just, it's so sad to think about that we haven't been taking the issues seriously and giving it the priority it deserves. What does taking it seriously mean or look like? Well, it means doing a better job at educating children, first of all, about body safety, which is one of the main things in Bev's mission with Miles for Smiles. She's been lobbying government for some time about introducing body safety in school at a very young age, right in kindergarten, which many provinces in the country do. Um, and of course, teachers need to be educated on child sexual abuse prevention to help. And I know we ask a lot of our teachers, but in terms of them doing a course, for instance, during their teaching degrees at MUN, you know, uh, there are certain things that stay with teachers. And I know that this would be one of those issues because I've heard it said. Um, parents and guardians need access to good information and they need to get information about the warning signs of sexual abuse or child abuse and they need to know where to look for help to uh, report this and how to go about reporting it. Uh, I was involved in a discussion last week uh, about a person um, not knowing it was their responsibility to report, but it is. Even if you have a suspicion of child abuse or some child being hurt, you need to report. You're obligated to report. And particularly, particularly if you know of a child um, who is 
victimized by someone in authority. Um, you really need to go out of your way to uh, review that and to report it because uh, oftentimes we don't know what's going on in a person's home. <laughs> you know, most of the time we don't. And this is why, again, this crime is so hidden and uh, so underreported because most of it, of course, takes place in their homes. Of course it does. You know, and I don't know what role the public plays because, you know, whether it be education and at an early age, people are so loath to talk about traumatic and complicated matters with young people. But, of course, I think we just underestimate their ability to understand it. We can craft a message so it can be easily understood, and it doesn't have to be fearful. It just has to, you know, give them cues to be mindful and to look out for each other. And then with the general public, you know, I'm sure there's people listening this morning that know of a family where this is very likely happening inside the walls of their home. And what they do or don't do about it becomes a personal decision based on not wanting to get involved, not wanting to stick your nose in people's business, fear of repercussions. So I really don't know the role the public plays, but I'm sure we have some role to play. Absolutely. And, you know, when you speak about the general public, it's not like there's a specific group, you know, that we need to be wary of. Like <laughs> the, the people who are involved in mistreating children are part of that general public, of a big part, and 30% that we know of. And again, it comes down to having the right numbers so we can, we can prioritize and address the issue. Bev and I and Tom uh, were at Confederation Building this week to have a proclamation signed for the month, and, you know, uh, we, we need to lobby harder to um, have it understood that this needs to be top of mind, top of agenda. And it's difficult. It's difficult to sway people because it is such a hidden crime. And that's why we need to bring it out of the darkness. As usual, appreciate the time, Connie, and I look forward to speaking with Bev next week. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Connie Pike. Of course, we, you know, some of these conversations are really so difficult, but... Not having the tricky conversations openly and honestly just perpetuates the status quo, which is obviously extremely very dangerous. Uh, before the break, let's go to two. John, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Brand, you? Good. I don't know how you do it, but I think uh, when you says come on Friday, I think you should have one day set aside for you and the listeners that everything got to be positive. <laughs> I mean, if that was if that was wow. manageable, that'd be a godsend to me, but... You know, it's not up to me what people call about, so I really don't know. And I ask for good news all the time. And you if do. people are willing to call and do it, that would be extremely uh, beneficial to me and absolutely for the listener as well. Yeah, you do. You do a great job, and you do promote uh, being positive all the time. It's hard on us listeners, boys. Sometimes, don't take this wrong, sometimes I have to turn it off because it just gets too much, by Like, that phone call just then, wow. Wow, I got to follow up with that one, and I'm going to do the best I can here now. Uh, and you got to get ready to go, so I'll be quick. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking that uh, on the radio net, they've advertised that the cutoff for donations to the Salvation Army on behalf of Port of Bass, I believe, is October 26th, and it will be matched by the federal government. I think I'm correct on that. Yeah, the, there is a deadline for the matching dollar to come from the feds and donations to the Red Cross. But, of course, that doesn't mean that there's not other ways to give and to okay. support. And, you know, whether it be through the Salvation Army or the town actually has yeah. an account set up at the bank locally for if people want to continue to help. And I'm sure people will. 
Okay, so uh, my my point this morning is I don't know if uh, people realise it or not, or uh, the concert that they're having for Fiona uh, on behalf of Porta Bass, uh, not this weekend but next weekend, is going to be past the deadline for matching with the federal government. So they're hoping to raise I think a half a million dollars. So I'm just wondering if they missed the the organisers of the what's it called the fundraiser for Fiona. I think it's we stand on guard again. Okay, so we stand on guard again. Uh, that's the 29th, I believe, of October. It's the 30th, yep, at Mary Brown Centre. Right, so will they be missing the deadline of the federal government to match the contribution that they're making? Because the cutoff for the Salvation Army, sorry, the federal government is only matching uh, up to the 26th of October uh, Salvation Army donations. The uh, yeah, I understand the point you're making, and the, the short answer is yes, they will be missing that. But to set up a concert, fifty percent of a donation from the feds. Yeah, but part of this is it's a bit more complicated for the organisers, okay. I would think. First, you need a night available. Like for instance, they couldn't do it tonight. The Growlers are at home tonight, okay. so you need a weekend night available at mile one. You need time to organise, to sell tickets, to establish the lineup. So, as much as it would have been great, and I'm sure they would have loved to have been able to get in under the deadline, and I wasn't really sure if it was the twentieth or twenty sixth, but Yes, the short answer is they will miss it, but things oh. like that take time, that's all. Okay, I just feel really bad uh, for the organisers that because it's too bad that they're not getting the two for one. Under the salvation, I wonder is there a way that they've, I wonder is it a way that they've committed to 500,000 so they're going to get uh, a million dollars? In no. other words, will they get the matching? I'm, I'm really, I feel really bad that they're going to miss the matching uh, contribution from the federal government. I feel really bad for him. Well, it, it's too bad. I think that there's think going to be correct? a big success. What? Uh, sorry, I, I apologize. Uh, last thing i got to say. Do you think that they're going to get under the wire, or do you think they're actually going to miss it? What do you think? They're they're going to miss it, but oh, I, I don't think there's much they can do about it. It really does take time to get those things yeah. organized. And number one is you needed a night, a night that yeah. was actually available inside the rink, and that wasn't going to be this weekend because the Growlers yeah. are at home. So I think just logistically, it's the way it's going to work. Yeah. But good on the arts community like they yeah. always do every yeah. time, step up to the plate and perform for free and do their yeah. charitable work on stage with their talent. So it's good stuff. John, i got to get to the break. Uh, Appreciate one, the time. Yeah, one, one last point. Do you think they Wait. might make an exception because they planned it a no, month ago? I doubt it. But I, don't, I mean, I can't say no oh, for you, sure. Okay. I have no say. You understand what I'm saying, right? Absolutely. Right? Uh, everyone does, yeah. Okay, listen, thank you very much for what you're doing. Take care, uh, take care John. Have a nice weekend. Okay, all the best. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Let's take more to the Executive Director of the Public Legal Information Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, better known as Plain. That's Kevin O'Shea. Hi, Kevin. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. I don't know how many calls you get in your office because of me, but if it's too many, sorry. <laughs> no, no, we're happy. We're happy to have them. We're always happy to, to uh, get the referrals from you, for sure. Terrific. Um, so, Patty, I've been, I've been meaning to, to call you for some time, actually, as this this story around Hockey Canada has continued to develop over the last few months, and I know you've brought it up, you know, a number of times on the show, and and as the the revelations have kept coming, and and these, you know, include reports of alleged incidents of sexual violence involving World Junior teams in 2003 and 2018, and then the, the revelations have come even just in the last week that Hockey Canada has had not only one, not only two, but actually three uh, cash reserve funds that were kept in order to pay out uh, uninsured claims, including settlements related to sexual misconduct, and that player registration fees from, from players across Canada were used, at least in part, to, to, uh, to uh, uh, keep up those funds. Um, 
And I just note that this is happening, you know, in a, in a bit broader context of reports around sexual violence in the world of hockey, and that includes the NHL. You know, there was a, a story just a few weeks ago about um, allegations posted on Twitter of, of sexual abuse and grooming by um, a player with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and, you know, an investigation uh, commenced in there. And, and just in the last few years, there were allegations of sexual assault by a Chicago player, uh, Kyle Beach, against a coach with Chicago. And that all happened, you know, when that team was making its Stanley Cup run in 2010. So I think there's a, there's a few points I'd, I'd like to make on this and kind of touching on Hockey Canada in particular, but in the broader context of sexual violence in the world of sports and in, in the world of hockey. And, you know, I, I guess first thing I'd say is I, I do want to commend you and thank you for speaking on this topic regularly and it's not something that any hockey fan wants to confront or wants to see happening in the sport we love to watch, but it's really important that these conversations are, are happening and, and that these issues are being addressed. And I don't as well, you know, I think um, TSN has done a really good job in, in reporting on these stories, and they have a good reporter, Rick Westhead, who's done a lot of, of in-depth reporting and breaking news on this. And when you consider the ratings TSN gets for the World Juniors, how much money they might you know, lose if advertisers pull out of sponsoring that tournament. Um, I think it's important to recognize that, and and other places might have been tempted to try and sweep that under the rug, given the financial interest. Um, so a few points I do want to make on on this, you know, in terms of the Hockey Canada story. And and first thing I want to say is from the victim's perspective. Um, and the question that often comes up with these sorts of stories is, or we're talking about sexual abuse or se- sexual assault in general, why don't more people come forward? Why aren't people reporting incidents to the police or, or bringing these forward? Um, YWCA Canada had a study a few years ago that reported out of every 1,000 sexual assaults in this country, only 33 are reported to the police, and only three out of those 1,000 result in criminal conviction. So. There's a lot of factors why more people aren't coming forward, but I think power imbalance is is a big one. And if you look at a situation like this involving Hockey Canada, the World Juniors, um, it's hard enough for an individual to make a complaint uh, to discuss sexual assault against any person. But when you think about well-known, famous people, and, and let's be clear, in this country, our World Juniors teams are celebrities. They're they're famous, you know, playing in the World Juniors, and many of them are going to go on and play in the NHL. And that's, that's an important factor to consider. Going up against people who are so well-known to, to bring your, your story forward is incredibly difficult. And when you look at, in the, when you see the 2003 and 2018 incidents, the young women involved in these incidents did, in fact, come forward, um, reported the incidents to the police. Investigations did ensue. Hockey Canada did start some investigations. But there was no requirement that the players on those teams cooperate in the investigation, speak to the, to the lawyers that were investigating. And, you know, in, in part as a result of that, there were no criminal consequences resulting, at least not yet, from these, from these incidents. And I think when that happens, you know, what is the message that sends to other survivors who may be out there and considering their options or considering if they want to come forward? I think many people might look at that and say, well, why should I bother coming forward since nothing substantive is going to come out of this anyway, uh, of these of these investigations that happened in the time? I know that they've been reopened and there may be consequences coming, but oh, there are. nothing happened in 2003 or 2018. Yeah, just a couple of things, because there's, I think they're all a little bit different case by case. The issues with the junior players, you know, there was uh, the allegation is that there was a gang rape. 
which is, of course, evil, atrocious, and anyone involved should be dealt with. But then it's the team dynamic. And nobody as a member of the team who knew about it was willing or wanting to say anything. That's one thing. Then you get an issue like Kyle Beach. He was sexually assaulted by a coach. Then we have the Graham James of the world who assaulted Sheldon, uh, uh, Sheldon Kennedy and possibly Theron Flurry. And so there we have the different power dynamics. It's hard to know if we can sweep them all into the one conversation as opposed to know that when you have a hierarchy of power, like a coach or a teacher or a priest or something, and then there's sexual violence, it's one thing. And then you have that the toxic nature potentially of mob rules. And I don't want to diminish it by saying something the stupidest peer pressure, but those types of things. And they are more and more likely to happen the higher you get in the sport. The more elite the level, the more the opportunity to be assaulted by a coach or a mentor or a manager. Same thing when you talk, when you talk about sexual assault as young men. So there's, that's where it all gets extremely weird and tricky and hard to navigate as a catch-all. Then you bring in the Ian Cole story. That's the Tampa Bay Lightning player you spoke of. So there was an allegation made anonymously on Twitter that Cole had uh, groomed and assaulted this woman. The investigation took like 17 hours. Right. <laughs> I mean, hardly right. very comprehensive. They couldn't get the person to come forward. So I guess what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is all of those instances are different enough where we have to have an understanding of how we approach each one individually. Because the player's behavior is one thing. The coach's behavior is another thing. Uh, allegations are another thing. The way the team hand handles Ian Cole, they're all a little bit different. Albeit in the same envelope, but it requires the nuance so that we get to a practical, pragmatic, realistic approach to how we deal with those different scenarios. You're absolutely right. Every case is, is going to be different. All the circumstances are, you know, unique and need to be addressed in, in different ways. But what I would say is I think the common thread with all of these and kind of the last point, the last broad point I want to make is if you look at this from an institutional perspective or an organizational perspective, and if I am in charge of any organization, any entity, any institution, I, want, I would be paying very close attention to, to these sort of stories and to the risks that come from not properly addressing and preventing sexual assault, sexual harassment, and other forms of sexual violence. I think over and over again, we've seen institutions want to try and sweep things under the rug and move on and pretend that these things aren't happening. But the bill comes due eventually, and it's, it's much, much worse when eventually the allegations of, of sexual violence or other forms of violence come forward, and there's also a perceived cover-up by the institution itself that happens. And, you know, we look, at, look locally. You know, we have, you know, many examples uh, all over the place of institutions that have failed to properly prevent or address sexual violence. But locally, you look at the Archdiocese of, of St. John's and, and the church. It's the long-term impact of, of not addressing, not, not uh, uh, taking action when sexual violence and other forms of violence have happened. You know, there's the long-term devastating impact on, on the victims of Mount Cashel and, and other clergy, uh, victims of other clergy in the Catholic Church. But then as a result of, of the legal action that comes eventually, the archdiocese has gone bankrupt and many churches in the, in the area have been sold. And when you look, go back to the sports world, we're not just talking about the NHL or Hockey Canada. Um, Gymnastics Canada has been in the news recently for uh, reports on sexual violence. Um, the U.S. Women's Soccer League had a big report that came out around sexual misconduct and, and other forms of abuse against their players. U.S. So, gymnastics? Uh, gymnastics Canada and then the U.S. Women's uh, Professional Soccer League, there was a report that came out as well. So 
so there's lots of there's lots of leagues, there's lots of of institutions. I think back to college football in the states, um, Penn State, that you know the the cover up that happened there years ago now with Jerry Sandusky. I mean, these are unfortunately stories that keep coming up again and again and again, and there's a real risk to the financial and and uh, bottom line and the reputation of these organizations and institutions when things are not handled properly. So I think any institution, any company, any organization really needs to look at carefully at their policies, what definitions they have of sexual violence, of harassment, of abuse, what prevention measures they have in place, and do they have a clear policy to handle complaints and to conduct investigations into these sorts of incidents? And are there clear consequences set out for those investigations? Well, for Hockey Canada, the answer is no. Uh, and it's not a perceived cover-up, it's a real cover-up. I mean, the story this morning is that this whole National Equity Fund, I mean, what a bizarre title to put on a fund that's set aside to pay off victims of sexual assault. Now we know that Hockey Canada has transferred, and some of this money comes from player registration fees, some comes from sponsorship, some comes from the federal government. They transferred $17 million into these funds to pay women who came forward with an allegation. So it's not a perceived cover-up, it's a f- absolutely willful uh, cover-up that they all participated in. So Absolutely. it's an important topic, and, I'm, and when I mentioned USA Gymnastics, I mean, it was only, a, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago, where their team doctor was convicted of hundreds of counts of sexual assault and sentenced to hundreds of years in prison. So, yeah, it's an important thing, to, uh, it's an important issue, process, protocols, reporting, oversight, all of these things have to play a much more active role as we uncover more and more of these horrible stories. Uh, last Absolutely. word to you, Kevin, before I have to go. So, Patty, I just say that if anyone is in the province who has experienced sexual violence, or even if you're listening from outside the province, but something happened in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, we have the Journey Project that can offer support uh, from our team, can offer access to free legal advice from a roster of lawyers, help you consider your options and, and what the path forward might be. Um, this service is available to you know, persons of any gender, uh, anyone over the age of 16 at the moment, 16 and above, we are in the works talking about and planning for hopefully expanding to all ages in the near future, But so stay tuned on that. But this service is available, um, and I encourage anyone who has experienced any type of sexual violence to reach out. They can contact us at 1-833-722-2805 or email support at journeyprojectnl.com. Um, so I, I would encourage any survivor to uh, to contact our team. Appreciate your time. Keep up the good work, Kevin. Thanks very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Kevin Bye-bye. O'Shea, the Executive Director at Plain, the Public Information Association. Uh, very quickly, the federal match opportunity has been extended. So the concert of We Stand on Guard, again, will indeed see all the donations and tickets for the show matched by the federal government. That's important information, and our Greg Smith is part of that gig as well. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number five. Good morning, Paul Toomey. You're on the air. Paul, you're on the air. Paul, oh, good morning, Patty. Sorry about that. Can't really hear you, Paul. Uh, you can't hear me? Uh, that's not a great connection. That sounds like we're talking through the car or something. Yeah, just, uh, I'm, I'm actually on the highway traveling, so uh, I'm going to pull over and see if that improves the connection. Uh, I'm 
Yeah, so let me put you on hold, take another call, caller so you can pull over safely, and then we'll see if we have a better yep. connection, okay? Well, I, I, I pulled over. Okay, now. go ahead, Paul. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, thanks for taking my call this morning, Patty. I'm, uh, I wanted to call briefly this morning to uh, talk about the, uh, the role that uh, family doctors and other primary health care uh, folks play in the uh, diagnosis treatment and uh, the referral of uh, people dealing with eating disorders uh, in this province. Um, it's, it's an issue that's been of concern to us for, for quite a while, that the family docs in particular don't receive a lot of information when they go through their training, and, but they are seeing a lot more people with symptoms of eating disorders. And uh, we wanted to play a role to help the doctors get a better understanding uh, what they can do to help their patients and how they can refer them to the great treatment programs we have in the province. Give us an idea of what we're looking at or what sort of training or information you'd be sharing with the family clinicians. Well, actually, right now, I, I pulled over. I'm, I'm on the way out to the West Coast to attend the uh, uh, College of Family Physicians, AGM, and uh, we've got a whole series of booklets we've put together with information on how to refer, information on uh, uh, diagnosis and what they should be looking for, as well as uh, providing some information on some uh, webinars and training programs that are available to primary health care people to, uh, to help them understand better an eating disorder. Because quite frankly, they see so many things in their practices, they can't be expected to be experts on everything. So we believe the role that we can play is to gather information all in one place and provide it to them within the confines of a place like their AGM so that they will have that information and, number one, know how to, how to contact us, and, number two, know the processes to get into the treatment programs. Because people are or should be aware that an eating disorder can, can come with some very complicated health matters associated with it. People sometimes simplify it all the way down to someone's too skinny, when, of course, that might just be a result of an eating disorder. But when you talk about the other organs and the complications because of your eating disorder and the mental health relations of an eating disorder, it's so complicated that I'm not surprised that all trained doctors don't have the tools to recognize it, to understand what to do next or what next steps should be, because it's not just as simple as purge or deny yourself food. It's so much more complicated. Yeah, absolutely, Patty. I mean, and, and, and you made a good point. The first thing to recognize, it is a mental illness, but it's one that manifests itself in some very serious physical uh, conditions that, that can lead, in some cases, to death. Uh, again, we see 25 to 35,000 people in this province dealing with an eating disorder of one type or another at, at any given time. So it's hard to expect primary health care people to have a full understanding, to know exactly what to do in many cases, because number one, their training might give them like two classes in it during the four or five years they're in school. And so what we've hoped to do here is to continue to provide a compact package of information that will help them and give them places to go so that they know the next steps in terms of the treatment process. Important stuff as usual. We've made some advancements here in the province with how we treat uh, 
folks and families with eating disorders. You know, the inpatient program that was critically important to have established. Your association does terrific work. I know like many things in the world of mental wellness and illness, there's been there's been some additional families looking for support right across the country when it comes to eating disorders. So keeping it on the front burner is always something I'm willing to do, as you know, Paul. Would you like to say anything else before we take a break this morning? Yes, Patty, uh, you're absolutely right. And and the role that we play as a foundation is, number one, to assist our primary, primary health care people to have the knowledge that they need to go further. And then our other main role is to support the families, provide them with the training and the understanding that they need to be able to help their loved ones because key to recovery is family supports. And family can be mothers, fathers, grandfathers. It can be close friends. But it's really important that the families understand the illness and understand how they can help and support their loved ones. 100%. Good to have you on, Paul. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Safe travels. Uh, okay, just before I get to the break, I want to say good morning and uh, congratulations to everyone that's going to be involved in the weekend set between the Western Kings and the Central Impact. That's in the U18 AAA ranks. So they've got a couple of fundraisers, Fiona Relief Fundraiser in particular. So there's going to be a 50-50 uh, chuck-a-puck draw at each of the games. There's a bake sale on Saturday. There's a gift card tree with a $250 value. All of the proceeds coming from the canteen, that would be the Cornerbrook Minor Hockey Association canteen, they will be donated. So the games are October 21st, that's tonight at 8 p.m., the 22nd at 7 p.m., and the 23rd is the 11 a.m. game at the Cornerbrook Civic Center. It's 7 bucks to get in. For 10 and under, it's only 3 bucks. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking darts. Perfect. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Shannon, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Great today. You? Uh, I'm doing better. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, uh, so uh, I was talking to you a while back about the house far I was in. A bunch of heights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I got a house. And tomorrow we're having a fundraiser dart tournament on Shea Heights. Um, now, uh, under my understanding is uh, they still need people if they want to play darts. They can still register to play darts. And there's going to be fundraisers, um, draws, uh, raffle tickets, everything. Uh, so any, everybody's more than welcome to come up. And all the proceeds are going towards my family and the other family that's been displaced towards the house fire. Where and when for the darts? It is at the Shea Heights Community Center, and it, the, door, the doors open at 2.30. And if you want to register for the DART tournament, you can call Renee Walsh. And I have her number. I can leave it with you. Fire or, away. Or, or, hold on. I got to grab it. <laughs> but it, the doors open at 2.30. Now they have basket draws done up and uh, raffle tickets. Um and the league, the dark tournament, she said that you can contact her too to register for that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I can it. Her phone number is 691 mm-hmm. 0205. And her so, name is Renee. Sounds good. Renee Walsh, 691 Do you play directs yourself, Shannon? No, but I, I'm going to try. <laughs> oh, sure. It's always been a fun. Uh, good luck with it. Hopefully you raise enough money to make things easier for the two families that were displaced because of those fires. Terrible stuff. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome, Shannon. Good luck with it. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. One, Bruno, you're on the air. <coughs> Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, I thought I'd call today to, uh, first of all, eulogize uh, Cabot Martin. I first met Cabot a little more than 30 years ago. Uh, the struggles that the inshore fishing community was having uh, with trying to save their way of life. Uh, Cabot moved on and uh, started working on uh, the Atlant on things that led eventually to the Atlantic Accord. He started working on oil and gas issues. Uh, well, I maintained uh, contact and willingness to work with the inshore uh, folks in their struggle to preserve uh, that ecosystem and their way of life. Cabot and I both shared a strong uh, view about uh, the role that um, environmental assessment played in um, empowering communities to have uh, information on projects that are uh, about to impact their lives and uh, give them a reasonable opportunity to have uh, some input. Uh, now, uh, it, Cabot, ironically, just four days from the time he passed suddenly, uh, had an article in the Gnarly blog warning uh, about uh, the wind projects at the port of, undergoing at Port of Port and the political uh, machinations that uh, have gone on around it. Uh, Cabot was uh, very astute politically, uh, had a different political orientation than I did, but we fundamentally saw uh, issues of democracy in, in the same way, and that is uh, empowering communities uh, had to come first if we were going to have a democratic society. So... Uh, he felt that environmental assessment is not just a set of rules, uh, but a fundamentally democratic process in which the public has the right to be informed and involved and to be taken seriously. So he talked in that article about a meeting uh, that, uh, met, uh, that happened uh, quietly uh, with a select group of politician and industry types, most of whom he thought were highly conflicted. They met secretly at the College of the North Atlantic. The goal of the meeting was to map out the province's wind future. Uh, they talked about the privatization of a massive amount of valuable crown lands. Uh, they, all, they discussed them in, in detail in clear anticipation of a land grant that was about to come. Indeed, company reps were already claiming to be first in line for a particular areas, GH2, staking out right to the Port of Port Peninsula without any legal basis, which troubled uh, Cabot greatly, as it does me. Uh, your minister... Uh, had uh, a more democratic view of the issue. Uh, 
And um, Cabot thought, when he looked at the at the documents, that this project was nuts, is what uh, Cabot concluded after looking things through, because not only was two-thirds of the port-of-port peninsula about to be privatized, the windmill areas and the roads and all of the infrastructure, but two other areas were also being demanded by uh, GHD to make it profitable. Um, Cabot saw what was going on was uh, not democratic, uh, to say the least. Um, so, but these privatization decisions have not been made. I mean, people I think have had it on the front burner, including here on this program yesterday with Minister Parsons about privatization, ownership versus lease and revert to the province if and when things go sideways, try to protect ourselves at every turn, which was the focus of the conversation yesterday. So, yeah, we can talk about worst-case scenarios. Yes, we can paint the picture of how poor decisions should at all costs be avoided here. Number one, what I think would be the greatest layer of protection regarding land is to simply lease it. You know, renewables at three or five year st- uh, uh, segments, whatever the case may be. But selling the crown land would be an absolute dead giveaway and would be an atrocious way to approach this project. But that seems to be what's going on. Well, it seems to be if you want it to be, but no decisions have been made. And we had that discussion so just it, yesterday. That's true. And, you, and your minister opposed the uh, first in line, uh, which is what uh, was first suggested by the company. And uh, he wants it to be a, a fair process, a bidding process, uh, which is commendable. Uh, we'll see uh, what would happen. But uh, Cabot uh, had a fairly cynical view of uh, what was unfolding. And uh, he concluded that... Uh, all in all, we apparently have yet another example of our tendency to base public policy on the short-term profit motives of our business class. He says, hopefully, things will turn out better this time. My only thoughts on the business class reference, because that's really common around here. We still have the the, the comments thrown around, like the, the merchant class and uh, and the business class, and fair enough. The only question I ask, and this is not a retort or a rebuttal, is who do we think is doing big business but people in the business class? That, that's sort of, we, we should protect ourselves at every turn from them. No question. Absolutely no question. But I always get a little bit confused with we're talking about business and how it can be done by other than people in business. Like I, I just find that to be you know, a little bit confusing because the merchants well, are the merchants, the business class are the business people. Yes, but when the people that are in business are a cozy clique of undemocratic uh, folks that uh, have little interest in the uh, um, public concern, um, Muskrat Falls is a prime example, uh, that Cabot finally said that... uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what he said. But back then, I was too busy on personal matters to figure out muskrat in detail. Broad strokes seemed enough. 
and I was glad Quebec was being circumvented, and I was looking forward to the prosperity, in quotation marks, the muskrat project would surely bring. Truth is, I was lazy, and I was stupid, but I won't be like that this time. This is the big one, big one in capital letters. So Cabot acknowledged his shortcomings with Muskrat and uh, what the impacts were. And he says that uh, he'll be vigilant this time. Unfortunately, he left the planet. It was a sad loss. It was a sad loss to the province. He was a force to be reckoned with, no question. Probably, he's the architect or one of the primary architects of probably the most important document in the province's fiscal history, which would be the Atlantic Accord. When others thought it couldn't be done and they were about to give up, Cabot drove it home and, of course, got done. A lot of the credit goes to Brian Peckford, but a lot of it belongs with Cabot Martin. Uh, Late for the news, Bruno, but I hope you have a nice weekend. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, uh, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing well, but that's another story. Well, and uh, Cabot uh, was a clear example and a shining light uh, to Newfoundland because he was concerned about the benefits of, Newf- of Newfoundland and Labrador's um, resources should go to the people of Newfoundland sure. and not to that business class. Because you saw what happened with Muskrat. You want it to happen Bruno. again? No. You want to give away all of Bruno. the... Uh, Bruno, God almighty. Well, well I'm asking a legitimate question when they want... Uh, it's, not, it's a completely illegitimate question. We just, we just spent half the conversation talking about defending ourselves from any more mistakes based on what we've learned in the past. I don't know how more, more, much more clear I can say those things. So... Okay. Yeah, but then you, uh, then you said, but uh, then then you defended the business class. No, I didn't defend the business who class, but who else do we think is doing business? This happens all the time. I mean, I don't know. We can't say goodbye to you. It's, it's just remarkable. I don't know who does business other than people in business is what I said. It's pretty fundamental. It's pretty straightforward. It's not, an, you know, it's not an argumentative stance to take. It just is what it is. And we well, cannot succumb the to them or their pressure or their money or their influence. How did Muskrat work out? Bruno, for the love of... Off to off I go. I hope you are doing well, well Bruno. Finish the sentence, Patty. Come on. Finish what sentence? Oh. How did Muskrat work out? Terribly. You can't just cut it off when you wish. How did it work out? I mean, is that is how there some did, sort of trick question here? How did class interest serve you? Terribly. Well. Terribly. Going to do it again? No. How are you going to stop it? Well, to try to put in Not mitigating measures, he, Bruno. He okay. Who's going to do it this time? Probably you. No, not me. I'll be dead soon, too. Oh, I, I hate to hear that, Bruno, but I am going. I am late for the news. I do wish you well, and stay in touch at your convenience. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, news time. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let us go. Line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, uh, what I'm calling about this morning, by is uh, I heard a lady on there earlier uh, talking about the fact that they did not sing the whole to Newfoundland at the end of the convocation this year at Memorial. That's right. Or, uh, the last day or two, whenever the convocation was. It was yesterday, yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, like her, I find that by very disturbing, or I'm, I'm very disappointed by it, let me say it that way, um, 
I don't know how many of your other listeners are, but I mean, I'm a, a former graduate of Memorial and, uh, and I'm a very proud alumni uh, of that university, uh, a very proud of our university and our province. And I'm very proud of our province's history and, and to, to not sing that old to Newfoundland anymore, especially given that it's implicit in the name Memorial University is, is, is part of the name is to remember the purpose for the name is to remember our, our ancestors or veterans that fought in past wars from world war one and so on. And uh, what a disservice I find that is to those people who are, we are supposed to be memorializing by the name uh, all in the, 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 for the sake of fear of offending uh, Somebody from Labrador, apparently, or uh, indigenous peoples. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm very, very disappointed by it. And I mean, why? Are, I mean, it's a part of our history. I mean, we can't change history, and we're trying to remove our history. It's, I find it very distasteful what that board uh, of the uh, directors or regents, whatever called it, memorial uh, on that decision to do that. Uh, very, very disappointed by it. I just found it odd, to be honest with you. So there's a seven-person uh, presidential advisory team is the name of this group, uh, Terry. It's uh, led by President Vian Timmins, and there's seven other vice presidents who are involved. And I don't think it was about... Okay, so we can read the stories, read between the lines. I don't know if it was about removing our history. What they're saying is that if, a, if someone from Labrador was sitting in the audience and didn't hear Labrador being referenced in song, that they wouldn't have the same sort of pride and inclusion. Okay, but as opposed to taking something away, why don't we just add something too? You know, if inclusion is supposed to be the guiding principle for people, okay, then why not just add the O to Labrador? There we go. Then we've got it all. We've got that beautiful anthem coming from Labrador. We've got the beautiful anthem by Sir Cavendish Boyle uh, in Newfoundland as old as 1902. Use them both. I just don't know why that wasn't the go-to move as opposed to, well, we can't uh, sing the O to Newfoundland because it doesn't say Labrador. Like, Why don't we just add Labrador to something then? I mean, that seems like the simplest way for me. I, I agree with you entirely. I think that's a fantastic idea. I mean, they have a beautiful hold, uh, Labrador, and, and I've heard it several times. I mean, why don't we sing both but not remove our hold to Newfoundland that's been a part of our culture and our history for, you know, literally hundreds of years. I mean, uh, include the hold to Labrador, too. I, I, I think they made a very bad decision, in my opinion. I think they should maybe revisit it. Because the reaction, like, for some people it's a big deal. For some people they don't care. Uh, fine. But even if it's just as fundamental as saying, you know what, that's probably a pretty good idea. Not because it's my idea. I've heard other people say it as well. Is, Let's just add the O to Labrador. Why not? Sure. <laughs> pretty sure. fundamental. I mean, uh, pretty fundamental. I agree with you entirely. And Anyway, I just wanted to give my two cents for it on it. I'm very, like I said, as a former graduate of Memorial, I mean, I remember that being uh, sung at my convocation many years ago. And... Uh, and I'm, I'm proud of our university we got there, but I'm not uh, I'm not very proud of that decision personally. Fair enough. Remove that uh, hold, you know. Fair enough, Terry. Okay, just want to say my two cents were there. Thank you very much. Anytime, all the best. You too. Okay, bye bye. Uh, another one for the break. Let's go to Sean. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? Top shelf, man. You? Oh, good, good. Today I was want to talk about that I was stopped by a police officer with a clear license plate cover over my phone, over my plate, and I was uh, 
the officer was in the next uh, lane, and when I and when the traffic uh, let let go, uh, he put on his lights and came over in my lane, and he uh, hauled me over, and I didn't. And he asked me why was. Uh, did he know why he harmed me over? And I didn't have no idea. And then he told me because I had a clear cover over my license plate. And I bought this vehicle back in 2017. And I, and I just left the cover on, didn't think nothing of it. But uh, apparently he gave me a ticket, and I thought that uh, that's all would be to it. So, of course, I went and paid the ticket. And then uh, this was in 2019. So there's a couple of weeks ago, I got uh, an email from my insurance saying that uh, I got a major conviction on my driver's license. So uh, I guess the officer put it on my driver's license as a major conviction, and now my insurance is going to go from 1200 a year up to 2700 a year. And I don't understand it because, you know, like people, there's lots of people got covers over their license plates, and there's some go- people going around with license plates with not even a letter on their license plate because it's all peeled off. So when I got the car, I just had nothing off it and left the cover on there and thinking it was a good idea, actually, for to save the license plate. And uh, if there's anybody out there who could give me some information or help me out in some regards, and that would be Greatly appreciate it. Uh, information or advice or help uh, with what exactly? What's the what's the question? I'm sorry. Well, the question is is that like my insurance went from twelve hundred to twenty seven hundred. Like, and why is it a, a license plate cover that you could go down to Walmart or to some store or maybe even Canadian Tire and buy a license plate cover yeah. to go over your car? My my thing is why is it a major conviction? Like like what's i i don't quite understand what why that that that's a major conviction and a six-year penalty on my driver's license it sounds like a pretty severe punishment for something as you rightfully point out i can simply buy in the store so it's a clear one i know some people have a very opaque license plate cover which of course is probably as much about covering the license plate as it is shielding the license plate number from people. But the clear ones, I see them all the time. I mean, you can see the numbers clearly. You can see the registration stickers clearly. I don't know what the problem would be, but a massive penalty on your driver's license and a what a doubling plus of your insurance premium seems outlandish. That's the only thing, the only knock on your driver's abstract? Is that ticket? Uh uh, yes, Patty. Uh, I got a clean uh, record, no accidents or nothing like that. Uh, totally clean record, and I got my class one. I got defensive uh, courses for driving, for class one driver's license, and I got a motorcycle license that I had since in 2000. And uh, and this car that I bought, I bought it with the cover on it, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I only use uh, the car every now and then for a go for like a little Sunday drive or whatever to go on, something like that, right? And uh, so it's not even a car that I use every day. It's something that I probably use only three or four times the summer just to go for a little drive in, in my classic car, and uh, and when the officer hauled me over, when he was in the next lane, I don't know if he came up on side of me and didn't notice it, and then he was waiting for the traffic to go for to come over in my lane for the haul me over. And when he did haul me over, he seemed like he was a bit irritated. I don't know if he was having a bad day or what, but uh, he even told me to get out of my vehicle 
uh, asked me to get out of my vehicle. So I shut off the motor in my vehicle, and I got eight. And at that moment, I didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen to me. But, uh, yeah, he was, uh, and uh, he wrote me out a ticket anyway. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll pay the ticket and that be all to it. And then when I found that I had the major conviction on my driver's license there a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, I'm like, I couldn't, like, I, at the moment, I didn't realize what happened. And I'm like, my God, I'm like, what did I do, you know? Sounds like a pretty intense interaction over something so trivial. So, yes, I'll, uh, Sean, I'll ultimately, are you simply not allowed to have a license plate cover? Period? I'm, I'm not really sure. Me neither. Since this happened, I've been uh, keeping my eye for other vehicles and stuff. And I just in the time that I live in myself, I've seen, I'm after counting 65 license plates uh, with either cover on their license plates. And I even seen a firefighter with a, a clear cover license plate on their vehicle. And I'm even after seeing like uh, seniors, all ages, don't matter, young, old, you know, whatever, and uh, to see another firefighter, and I'm like, my God, it can't be that bad. And then, uh, and to see all these plates with, like, I'm after seeing a couple of like, some plates with, you couldn't even say it, see the leather or the number, like the whole plate was silver. Yeah, there's a buddy of mine got that exact thing. You cannot see a single, there's not a fleck of paint on the license plate at all. Yes, and that's what I don't understand. Like, I get tired over uh, driving this car on a beautiful sunny day. It's not like it was snow or mud on the car. It was it was clean. It, it, the license plate is clean and in mint condition. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just can't wrap my head around it. I've been talking to people in motor registration. I'm talking to my insurance. I went to the police op- uh, station t- two or three times, and... Like, nobody can understand why this is a major conviction. Like, I can't I'm either. Around in circles. I can't either, and I wish I had somewhere to point you, but between the police and the insurance company, I'm not sure who else could be involved in the conversation. But what I'm going to have to figure out right away is whether or not it's actually in contravention of the Highway Traffic Act to even have a license plate cover. If so, let's not sell them to people. Because I bet yes. you nobody knows. I don't know. Yes, why is it even on, why is it even on the shelf so if it's a... If it's such a major thing, you know? Yeah, let me see what I can find out. And when I get some info, I'll talk about it on the show. But I'm sorry it happened to you. Uh, very quickly, what kind of classic car do you have? It is a, it is a Camaro. Nice. What year? Uh, 92. Beauty. Uh, thanks yeah. for this, Sean. I'm sorry it happened to you, but I'm going to see what info I can find. Okay, thank you very much, Patty. And if there's anybody that could give me this information... Uh, Patty, you could give them me then my number, and they could call me. It would be greatly appreciated. I'll do exactly that. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. Bye bye. Have a great day. You too. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Paul, you are on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing very well, thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. Good. Uh, I'm a first time caller. I listen quite frequently. I just want to make a comment to that man. Uh, he just said uh, he has a clear cover over his license plate cover. Yep. He bought the vehicle in 2018. So if he bought that in 2019, obviously it would have had to have been inspected, a motor vehicle inspection. That's right. Uh, so the point I'm trying to get at is uh, I don't think there's anywhere in the motor vehicle inspection that says your license plate can't be covered with a clear 
cover. Yeah, so uh, since that, you know, people have the luxury of being able to Google stuff up during the calls. I didn't know the answer to it, but apparently, so let's see here. Someone just sent me the section from the Highway Traffic Act. Section 13.2 of the Highway Traffic Act indicates that every number plate shall not be obstructed and must be plainly visible at all times. Each identification plate shall be kept free from dirt and should also be affixed and maintained that the numbers on it may at all times be plainly visible, clearly legible. Okay, but if I can see through the cover, then how does that obscure the view of the plate? There's some that are very dark and you really can't see anything. But if you have a simply completely plain license plate cover, I I mean, I don't know. I'm not getting much from the sections of the Highway Traffic Act, but I'm going to try to figure it out. Well, exactly. That's the point I'm getting at. I really don't think there's anything wrong. And if there is anything wrong, it should go back to the man who inspected the vehicle when it was sold. It was his responsibility, that man being a mechanic, it was his responsibility to make sure that machine missed the traffic act. 100%. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Also, another point I'd like to make there that seems around this topic about the motor vehicle inspection, what about the tinted windows that are on the road today? (laughs) Look, there's a, it, that's an excellent point. And someone from Stephenville just sent me a note during the uh, last conversation talking about exactly that, dark tint glass. Yeah. Look, there's a certain amount of tint that you're allowed to have. When I got uh, my vehicle, I bought it used, and it had a certain amount of tint, which I think passes the test, but I don't really know. But some of the windows out there are completely black. You can't even see if there's I, anyone in the vehicle. Yeah, personally, I don't believe there's allowed to be any tint on your front windows. Out back, like your back windows and out back, you yeah. paint it if you like. That's right. Your two front side windows are not supposed to be tinted. Now, if you have a medical condition, people, some people are like uh, have medical conditions with the sun, you can get a little bit of tint put on there, but it's not very much. But I, I know that from experience, that you can get a little with a medical note or something from a doctor. People uh, are allergic to sun, basically. Not allergic, but have reactions. Yeah, they have sensitivity issues. That's right. Yes, yes. Yeah. But but uh, I just wonder, like, uh, uh, well, what's, what's, where, how come there's so many tint on the go? Where are the RCMP? They're not stopping these vehicles and, and giving them tickets. And two, uh, back in the 90s, uh, Mr. Effort took the motor vehicle inspection away. I think it's time to bring it back. Every time we talk about it, you get people agreeing because, look, the junkers that are on the road are jeopardizing my safety and their safety and your safety and everyone else on the roadway. And then when we talk about it, the first response I get all the time, Paul, is we're just creating another cash grab for the government. So where do we find that balance between not just allowing government to be continually in my pocket, but making the road safe? It's a tricky one to navigate. I'm not sure, but I see cars out there that do not belong on the road, whether it be with the baloney skin tires or the mufflers dragging on the road or the brakes are gone or the shocks are gone. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why some cars just simply do not belong on the road. Well, yeah, you're 100% right. But if we bought back the inspection, it might help. And i tell you something else about the inspection. Uh, I know from experience, I've been at this for a little while. I've done hundreds of motor vehicle inspections. Uh, but the mechanic who does the inspection is only responsible for 30 days. So you could, or at the time when I was doing so you can bring in a vehicle and have four perfectly good tires on it. That could be off your buddy's car. That's right. You could after the inspection, you could go switch your tires over, and now you got bald tires on it. But the mechanic is responsible for thirty days. Uh, I got to try to find the justice and all that. You know what I mean? It's a fair point to make. Uh, someone's been trying to get me to bring up winter tires, which I will because here comes the season shortly where people will be making the transition. There's, you know, you can get insurance break in some provinces with having winter tires, and for me. I'm kind of, and I know not everyone's got, you know, all kinds of cash sitting around to buy expensive rubber, 
But boy, there's something to be said for mandating them too, <laughs> you know. Well, it comes down to the safety. How much is your safety worth? How much is your family's safety worth? A hundred percent. Right, that's where it all comes down to right there. That's the yeah. bottom dollar. Right when it goes to motor vehicle inspection. Is it a cash grab for the government? I can't see it. Is it going to put more money into the economy? Yes, in a certain, you know. But you'll also have them Joe Blows, the mechanics that are going out with their inspection book in their back pocket. They're going into their clubs. And their buddy's going to buy him a couple of beer. He's going to sign off an inspection slip for it. It happened in the past, and it'll happen again if it comes up that way. Right? Well, sure, it even happened in the world of school buses. Well, same kind of situation, exactly. Is my point there. Yeah. You know, so. Paul, it's <laughs> good to have you on. I'm a bit late for the news, but I appreciate the first time callers. Thank you very much, Patty. Good all, show. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, uh, time for the newscast. How are we doing on the phone there, David? When we come back, we're speaking with you. I can feel it. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. All right. So line number one, Kevin, you're on the air. How are you, Betty? Okay. How about you? Oh, getting through it, you know, day at a time. Yeah, that's about all you can do, I suppose. Oh, my son, yeah, that big old sea got a piece of me. The COVID? Oh, no, the cancer, boy. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Kevin. Uh, boy, if it wasn't me, to be somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and how are you doing? You okay? Oh, boy, I'm in the best hands possible. I don't try not to worry about it, boy, because, uh, you know, if they're looking after it, it's no good worrying about something you got no control over. Mm-hmm. What, I do, what I do worry about, though, is Chucky number two again, and him and John Risley, and his response to what he does on his own dime is his own business. Well, I'd like to explain to Mr. Fiore that he's an elected official, and what he does on his dime if it concerns anything to do with this province is not on his own business. It's, it has to do with us. You know, and, and you had to come out and look at all this. I think, like I said before, we're a province of half a million people. We have billions and billions of dollars in resources. We should all be millionaires except for the clowns we have in there screwing us over every time something happens. For me, there's been so many major league issues that have cost us dearly. And this one all of a sudden brings upon uh, th- uh, thoughts of ethics commissioners and all the rest. I don't know. Look, I mean, if something on untoward happen on that fishing trip then that's a problem but here's what i'll throw into the conversation get your response kevin is andrew fury premier fury could have spoken with john risley any day anywhere at any time in addition to whether or not he had any discussion regarding wind while he was on a fishing trip with his father so that's where i think that we've you know, we maybe get a little bit carried away on some of this stuff. Yes, there's got to be accountability. Yes, he sh- has to pay his own way. But he could have met with Risley. He, sh- he could have met with him in his backyard anytime. Oh, oh without a doubt. We'd never, never know. That's right. Know. Some, somebody let us know. And that's the thing. There is no accountability. And then they come up and, and his plan was, here it is, openness and accountability. Where was the accountability and the, and the openness and the Ratchard report? Where's the openness and accountability now on this new... Uh, future fund that they're putting forward that they can take money from it and put in general revenues. You know where that's going to go? Well, it can't go straight into general revenues, but that's a fair question is what constitutes an extraordinary circumstance? What does that mean? Exactly. I mean, you know, so so there's so many things that these clowns are in there and they think that people are so stupid and they don't know what's going on and there's only one way to get rid of it. Everybody should vote for an independent to hell with their parties because the parties are the ones that crucify it all. They're the ones that are getting the donations and everything else. Let's just get rid of the liberals. 
see what, can, what we can do with it. That's the only way to fix this crowd is just stand up and say, enough is enough, boys. You're, you're lying through your teeth. There is no openness and accountability that's coming from you. Because if there was, we'd have the, you'd have the Ratchard report now, so you could bring it out and show the people, well, look, this is what I see. What do you see? You know, there's there's so many things. It's a, it's an easy way for them to throw the words around. Sorry, my throat's getting raspy. That's okay. But anyway, my brother, that's all I wanted to say. You take care, have a good one, and hopefully down the road we can get some transparency and accountability. I wish you well, Kevin. Thank you, buddy. Thanks, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Look, the issue about conflict, look, there's absolutely more can be done here. Like there's a federal ethics commissioner, there's no good reason why there wouldn't be a, a provincial one. And then more measures to be taken about lobbyists and access and who they spoke to and when and about what and to have it documented. I mean, these are all legitimate things that we should indeed have in place. Kevin mentioned donations. A good place to start with all of this stuff, even though sometimes people say automatically, if you made a donation, you're getting a favor. Some companies donate to both big parties, we'll say, the Liberals and the Tories. Well, the only parties that have actually held a seat of government in this province. And they'll just hedge their bets, right? They'll sponsor or they'll donate to both or three parties. The perception is out in the public is that if you make a donation, you're getting something for it. A surefire way to rein some of that in is to limit the amount of money any individual or corporation can make to a political party or individual. Ban out-of-province donations, period. Campaign finance reform is in all of our best interests. Maybe not in the interest of the politician, but that's not really my worry, right? That's not my worry at all. What's better for me as a taxpayer is I think what most of us, if not all of us, consider to be the most important part of this, not about the politician and their ability to raise money. You know, yes, they'll raise money so they can put a wrap on a big tour bus and make their way around the province. And yes, they'll buy ads on television or radio. And yes, they'll have these glossy mail-ups that end up in your mailbox. But there's nothing quite as effective as getting out there with some shoe leather, banging on doors to see if you can indeed convince someone or to secure a vote for one individual or the party. So let's start with that. Ethics commissioner, sure, let's do it, 100%. Now, inevitably, it's going to be told that I'm defending Fury's decision to fish in Labrador. No. The point that I'm making is a very simple one. If there was going to be any meetings that happened between uh, Premier Fury and John Risley or Brendan Paddock and Andrew Fury or all three or a combination thereof, it could have happened anywhere at any time. Would this help the story if Premier Fury said, okay, here's the invoice and here's how I paid? It'd probably go a long way because if indeed there was any freebies associated with that trip, that's a problem. And he knows it to be true. He said he paid for it. Fair enough. You know, maybe to take the temperature down in some corners. And I know the way he defended himself and said uh, politicians deserve more respect and what I do on my own time with my own dime is my business. That It probably didn't help. Frustration's real. And I guarantee that made more to the story than it possibly would have been without that reaction from the premier. But that meeting could happen anywhere at any time. Your thoughts. They're welcomed right after this. The final break of the day, the final break of the week. Do not go away. Welcome back. Uh, all right, let's go. Line number three. Bob, you're on the air. Hello, Pabby. Hello, Pabby. Good after. Uh, good morning, Bob. Welcome to the show. This is old Bob Tucker. I'm calling to send a congratulation and thank you to all the healthcare workers, doctors, uh, and, and nurses. They're doing an outstanding job. 
for the conditions they got to work under. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're overworked. I, I, I don't know what the problem is. It seems like there's lots of money, but there's not enough workers. Well, there's certainly a shortage on some fronts, and there's lots of different programs and money's being offered to try to cure that. I don't know how successful it's going to be, but we can all hope that they get the type of resources in place and the type of environment where people aren't uh, continually burnt out and stressed out in place. Absolutely. Yes, I, I had a brother I lost. He died there a little while ago, younger brother. And the nurses and the doctors, uh, they go hell of a way to help you, boy. I guarantee you. They need the medical. There's certainly lots of good people working in healthcare, Bob, that's for sure. You're smart, young fellow. What's your opinion of to try to solve the problem. Well, I don't know how smart I am, but I do know that some of the things that the uh, government is trying to do to make it better, they seem to be coming up with a bunch of different pots of money and a bunch of different ways to encourage people to come home as healthcare workers, to encourage people to work as rural family doctors. So I don't really know what else can be done. I think what's kind of missing in part of the conversation is that for some people, it's not just about money. For instance, if I'm a nurse as a full-time permanent and I can hardly get a break, I can hardly get a day off to catch my breath, those people are going to be miserable at work, not want to work, maybe find a new career, maybe work elsewhere. Those are the things that I think are a bit harder to deal with than money. We can always make more money for people. We can always try to dangle incentives in front of people. But no one wants to be miserable at work because they're overworked and burnt out. That's the hard part for me to try to figure out how we do that better. Well, I say... Work, you got to enjoy your work in order to do your work good. But them doctors and nurses are doing a excellent job on, and, and runs under such a strain. You know, money is not everything. Money is not everything. We, no. we, and, and I think the people, they need a little, more, little bit more praise from the public for what they're doing. The public, lots of times, condemns them doctors, doctors, nurses, and stuff, and they really shouldn't, they're not to blame. No, I mean, I would imagine the vast majority of healthcare professionals are doing everything they can to do their job and to be compassionate for the patients that they treat. We do hear stories and they grab the headlines every now and then where someone is not doing that, but I've yeah. got to think that the uh, vast majority are doing everything they can. Yes, I got relations here in homes, we say, with Alzheimer's. And, and, and the people in there are really, really excellent good to them. They treat them like if they were their own. Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, what you said just then, I think you're 100% right, Patty. And, and, and I, my prayers go out to everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador. Because we, sure, we need more people more people, like them people, and yourself, to rule this country. Because they're, they're not going about it the right way. The higher-uppers, I call them. <laughs> uh, that's a good way to refer to certain groups of people, for sure. Bob, I'm yeah. glad you're still up and at them and able to give us uh, some of your time here on the show. And I wish you nothing but the best. And the same to you, Patty. Uh, and you've done an excellent job at your work. 
Now, I'll tell you again. I told you before, and I'll tell you again. You should have been a politician. It's an unthankful job. As a, as a job that you'll never get praised up by him. No. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're not well in the head, be a politician. Appreciate this, Bob. Thanks. Have a nice weekend. Same to you, Patrick. Thanks, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. I'm an old man. I'm going to be with you. Same to you, Bob. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Um, I just want to call in and remind you, I don't think you were the host of the show when this happened, but it wasn't it the Risley fellow that came in through the back door, and, the, and but it was the beginning of the end of our FPI fisheries. I don't know if you knew about that or not. Yeah, I do. I, I think the FPI story has got a bunch of different tentacles that are important to remember. Absolutely. So th- the biggest part of that FPI story for me, and always has been, when we lost the marketing division of FPI, we really set ourselves back a long way. It was completely unnecessary. But you're right, Mr. Risley's done business here, including regarding FPI and Clearwater Foods. And remember the whole surf clam issue down in Marystown? Yeah, so he's got a long history here in the province. And not all of it, great. No, none of it was great because <laughs> now he's coming back in on this. But the, the plant in Massachusetts used to, they were a big buyer of the fisheries. And there was none of that after all this happened. And uh, I think it's sad that he's coming back and trying to, to take something else because I don't think it's, it's proper. It should have gone out for for somebody else, for anybody else to bid on it or something, because that's how he came in through the back door, and it was the beginning of the end of our fisheries. And now, of course, Mr. Risley and his group are one of, I think, 31 was the last number we heard, of people who are bidding for different parcels of Crown land and for wind proponents. So there's a big, long list of the Mr. Risley's group included. Well, I hope they're not all like Mr. Risley. <laughs> but anyway, I want to make you aware of it. But I guess you were already ahead of me. That's okay. I'm really pleased that you thought to uh, give me some information because whenever people know stuff that I don't, I'm more than happy to listen. Thank you very much. Thank you, ma'am. Have a nice weekend. Okay, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line one. Lillian, you're on the air. Yes, Teddy. Uh, Someone uh, came by my door last week and said they picked up a set of keys in front of my house. So I was after asking my family, because we're to come back and forth, they had lost your keys. But mm-hmm. they they said no, and I've been out around asking people. And uh, But, like, there, there's uh, it's car keys. It's a Toyota uh, car key plus other things that are on the keys besides. There's a lot of keys and there's starters. So I would have to, um, like, they'd have to tell me what is on these keys that I've got because there's a lot there and I don't know what to do with them. Well, I mean, if someone has lost their keys, what part of uh, the province are you calling from? Um, I called uh, here in St. John's and off a wishing well road okay. were picked up and someone knocked to my door and held them and said Some, you lost your keys so I thought probably one of my family lost their keys but uh, I asked and no and I've been out around asking people and no 
Well, if you're in and around town and in the neighborhood or the vicinity of Wishing Well Road and you have lost your keys, maybe they're the keys that Lillian has, we'll keep your number off the air if you like Lillian. And if they call us, we'll, we'll put them in connection with you. How's that? All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a nice weekend. You too. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Whew. Good show. A big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We'll pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.